Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Well, we normally wait until the end of the regular season to do this, but it doesn't look like a substantial amount of the regular season will be played still. So Danny and I are going to get to our all-defensive teams. This is basically just the defense episode. Not only are we going to pick our all-defensive teams, but I'm also going to submit some nominees for worst team all-defense, and then a, a bunch of different categories, like who's most improved, who fell off this year, who's better than you think, worse than you think. Uh, one of my favorites, the uh, most with the least award, and the least with the most award so that's coming right now also uh, at the end of this is the covid daily news yeah we changed the title because there have been a ton of podcasts with the title coronavirus daily if you want to subscribe to that on itunes there's a link at the top of my twitter at nate duncan nba we'll still be running it here for a little bit longer or you can search nate duncan covid or nate duncan coronavirus in your favorite podcast player we're up to number 88 on the itunes news charts just ahead of 60 minutes and the new yorker so take that 60 minutes i always thought of myself as a rival to them so uh danny let's uh get started here with all defense uh, how do you approach selecting the best defenders in the nba i think of it more about this is more like all nba teams where for me it's not most valuable defenders though it can be a tiebreaker or be a factor you know if a guy played a lot more minutes it's more how good of a defender were you in the time that you played and it's a lot of i mean if you can do the him alone test if a player basically makes a defense by themselves then yeah they're almost definitely going to make one of my all defensive teams and outside of that i look a lot at strengths but also versatility and ideally a, a, the minimization of weaknesses you know they're within realm of your position like i don't care if a point guard is a bad post defender or anything like that but if you can defend multiple positions if you can if a team can rely on you to do more than just defend your guy then that makes it really good and then of course in the reciprocal for like worst team and all that the the less versatile you are the more you fail basic assignments all that type of stuff the more the more i'm going to downgrade you yeah absolutely we'll get to the criteria for worst team uh, all defense but uh, for this one for me i rely on watching more than the stats uh, i would say I, I defense is also those. brutally hard to quantify yes brutally um and but unless there's just a massive difference in the stats i just default to who i think is better a lot of what i value also is versatility being able to achieve different roles defensively i, I think that's especially important when you're talking about perimeter defenders centers as well you know how much scheme versatility do you have what are your weaknesses uh, as you talked about so uh, also the way we're going to do this we're going to go through point guard through center with the positions but then we'll pick who we, we would have picked for our actual ballots at the end of that which just has guard forward center so let's begin with point guard danny who is your first team all defensive point guard in the nba this was a a different kind of year because i thought that some of the old stalwarts eric bledsoe drew holiday did a good job but i ended up not having either of them on my first or second team just i thought other players did a little bit better this year and my first team guy is patrick beverly not only is he a, a metrics darling that is not why i chose him but what beverly one of the rare point guards who can really defend multiple positions who can get into players and has a not a super high steal rate you know 1.9 percent is is on the low side of a really really good defender but very aggressive makes life hard makes life hard on the opponents and the ability to go larger creates some real benefits for the Clippers even though it hasn't been as valuable let's say this year because they have so many other good defenders now compared to other years Beverly has a sterling statistical resume oh yeah 
sixth in defensive PIPM, second in defensive RPM, ninth in defense, or I'm sorry, uh, 16th in defensive Raptor. Uh, when I say he's, he's sixth in PIPM, that's among all of the candidates that we considered here at any, any of the positions. Um, multi-year PIPM, very solid. Only 1,300 minutes, so that's a little bit lower than some of these players. But also, I would say, you know, Chris Dunn, for example, played at a really high level, but just doesn't have the minutes. So if you're, to me, you really have to be a starter or playing starter level of minutes to be on this list for me. You can't just be a pure defensive specialist. Um, Did you have Beverly To me, team? though... Okay. Yeah. What would you say? No, I didn't. Uh, he did not make either of my teams. I went with Drew Holiday number one and Eric Bledsoe number two. See what with the think, more the more established, really good defenders. That's fair. Yeah, I think like those guys are stronger, just more length than Beverly as well. I know Beverly can play the pass a little bit on larger players. He also just fouls too much to me, and he doesn't make plays as much as Holiday or Bledsoe. I, I think that Beverly just doesn't have the physical characteristics to just swallow up some of the other point guards that he plays he's really likes to just get under the chin of bigger players you know i don't think he's quite as good of a pick and roll defender uh, as bledsoe in particular getting over screens and i think the the lack of playmaking ultimately uh, you know he's just not as impactful he'll take charges certainly but he's just because of his lack of size and strength he's not as impactful as a help defender for me so i i drew holiday first team bledsoe second team i realized that holiday did not have as amazing of a statistical resume this year but I, I think part of that is because he's asked to depend the other team's small forward most nights uh and we've seen what he can do when he's put on to point guards uh, more often going back to that 2018 playoffs uh, against new orleans for example and dame lillard um yeah and Bledsoe, he did have a, a pretty good resume he was third uh, on this list uh, in defensive PIPM. So I I feel comfortable with him. And uh, Beverly, to me, is just a, is a little bit more of like a specialist and an irritant than an all-around guy. Yeah, I, I think it's just got, to an extent, it's it's what we value. And yeah. going going by, I mean, Bledsoe has been a wonderful defender for years. Beverly has as well. But I, I really like Bledsoe too. He is my, we'll, we'll get into this distinction. I had him number three, but he is a he is having a great year and I, I liked him his resume you know just this year more than drew it gets hard with point guards because we've talked at length over the years about how point guards aren't as important for overall defense and Eric Bledsoe has been a part of a significantly better group and is a and is an important contributor to that success and drew has not been as part of as, as successful a group but the defensive personnel that the Pelicans have had really throughout the year I mean you go through a bunch of different iterations that they've gone through there aren't many other than Derek favors there aren't that many other good defenders on this team so I don't put a lot of the blame on him for that but at the same point he didn't really elevate them as much as in other years my second team guy I I respect the the some of the sample size things but for me Chris Dunn he started 32 games out of 51 if this had if they had played a full 32 game season because remember Chris Dunn is injured right now then I don't think I would have had him there but the way that he transformed this Bulls defense because remember some of the on off stuff you know like him being so prominent in that the Bulls other good defender I mean so you probably have Thad Young and then Wendell Carter would be the other two Wendell Carter started when he was available for them and Thaddeus Young's role was a little bit nebulous but Adam but Chris Dunn not Adam Dunn slightly different sport um Chris Dunn, the Steel King, 3.8% steal rate. Yeah, Adam Dunn was not the Steel King in baseball, by the way. No, he was the three <laughs> outcomes king. But it was, but it, but Dunn, that steal rate, but also just the way the, so Chicago's defense, the, what kept them, you know, what kept them in the ranks after the opponent shooting finally regressed to where it should have based on the location stuff was that they forced a ton of turnovers. I thought that Dunn was a, gargantuan part of that and I, I wanted to acknowledge that success he also he can defend multiple positions he's just a brute out there which I love at the guard spots you know it's it's, it's an attribute that I really like and I thought he had a I thought he had a really good year and he played in 51 games and normally that wouldn't be enough but we didn't get a full 82 yeah I guess I, I also kind of extrapolate out a little bit that he would have missed the rest of the season I'm kind of projecting slightly what might have happened over the last uh, 20 games uh, or so here but yeah I think Dunn to me just didn't quite play quite that big of a role I do think he's 
the best ball hawk in this group he's probably the best at like at pressuring the ball as guys bring the ball up court he probably got the most pick sixes yeah out of this group so yeah he's really really good uh also we haven't really seen him do it on a good team in the playoffs either so I, i'd like to see more of that but certainly the numbers were there bulls 6.8 points per 100 possessions better with done on the floor and that is fourth on this list and that includes all of the all defense candidates we brought uh, across all positions yeah so i had him cal lowry the numbers weren't as amazing for him this year but i still think as a help defender he might be the best he he's slowed down a little bit as has chris paul at the point of attack but those guys are some of the best switching uh being strong uh, against larger players chris paul is on this list for me as well yes fred van vliet uh also honorable mention lonzo ball you had on your list i wasn't as high on him this season um and he also again was to me he doesn't have enough versatility he's not good enough as an on-ball guy that we'll get into that with some of the small forwards too uh where he's more of an off-ball guy and DeJounte Murray and Derek White have been good at times I thought Murray fell off this year based on where he was two years ago and the the Spurs defense overall wasn't very good so they weren't in consideration for me but worthy of mention uh anything more on the point guards no one thing I'll mention just because I can't remember you said this at the at the jump for at least for me for this part of it we're doing the positions as we define them for the position rankings and so if you're wondering why a guy is in a certain spot it's because that's where we have them in the position ranking so you can do that yeah. and well well so i i will say i changed it a little bit i, I know when we talked before the show we said we were going to do it that way i changed it for like the guys who actually and this isn't really a huge change but the guys who are actually playing different positions i was i put him at that position like jalen brown for example i put him at shooting guard just because he's been playing a lot of shooting guard um even though we had him in the small forward rankings because that's the position that he would typically play um but I, I don't think that changes much either way i think he might have been the only guy that i thought that changed things for me um okay so yeah let's let's move to the shooting guards now for shooting guards as i de- as, as i defined it i had a clear number one and that was marcus smart i am a firm Me too. I, i'm a firm believer in what he does defensively guarding a bunch of different positions being just an absolute force effort level loose balls man-to-man defense and yeah he the the two guard position was surprisingly weak for me this year in terms of contenders yes but he would have been strong in any year yeah the other guy that i had second team was josh richardson uh, another guy who spends a lot of time playing point guards i mean really uh, what sets smart and richardson apart to me from some of the other shooting guards that we're looking at is just their ability to really guard one through three smart even can guard some fours and in addition to their ability to get through screens, uh, their strength, they both uh, are big playmakers as well. Sharks, solid help defenders, and Smart in particular. And I thought they're a clear cut above anyone else that we considered, which was who for you? Only one player in the entire NBA averaged over 3% steal rate and a 3% block rate. That is Matisse Thibel, Josh Richardson's teammate. Also a monster in defensive PIPM. He actually had the best defensive PIPM of any shooting guard as as we define the positions. And yeah, I but, thought he, well, he was in, uh, I, I thought of him as a small forward, actually. Yeah, you but, could, you uh, could put him in different, uh, I think we classified, yeah. we classified him as a two when we did the rankings. So that's where I put him there. Great, you know, great playmaker. He does other things wrong, <laughs> you know, obviously. And he played 1100 minutes, but I wanted to mention him and I also want to mention Gary Harris. Like we, Gary Harris's shot couldn't go in at all this year, but his defense was still very good. Yeah. And Jalen Brown would be in this mix sure. uh, for yeah. me as well. Um, even though he's more uh, of a natural small forward, but yeah, I mean, smart and Richardson, these are probably the two uh, power forward was pretty easy too, actually, but this is some of the, yeah, I think power forward was the power forward was the easiest for me small forward is very interesting because some of the guys with really good numbers to me aren't as versatile particularly as on ball guys they make a lot of plays off ball and those are the stats that impress a lot of these uh defensive one number rankings but i also say if you're going to be a small forward on my first team all defense you better have a fighting chance against the absolute best wings on the other team and so uh you know chris middleton jimmy butler can't really do that anymore jason tatum robert covington those guys are even danny green who's solid there but he's not among the best those guys are honorable mention but i couldn't go there with them because i think your number one job as a small forward is you got to guard the best wings in the nba so to that 
that end, my first team was Kawhi Leonard, really improved this year, started, especially as the season went on, taking on more difficult assignments once again actually able to uh, i mean he really was limited last year in the playoffs he was able to stop Giannis because Giannis is kind of a bigger guy but he really was struggling getting out on the floor and sliding his feet that it has improved and uh the numbers for Leonard are, are impeccable what do those look like yeah i mean Kawhi's and remember last year his statistical case was not particularly great he is second in defensive rpm for small forwards uh, only behind lebron james he's strong in, in raptor as well he is eighth among all positions of, of the guys that we consider for the list and i believe he is number one depending on where you count thibel of of small forwards and then i mean the on off have been good with him it really really his his case is strong this year and i think that's impressive considering it wasn't last year yeah and it's not like he didn't play that many minutes he was at yeah. 1600 minutes that's a, for this company that's totally fine my second team was OG Ananobi. I talked about how if there's one guy that I wanted to guard an ISO at any position in the whole league, it might be him. He's not as much of a playmaker. It also doesn't play as many minutes, but they're really, among these other candidates, I thought that he's just so much better guarding the best guys one-on-one that I, I decided to go with him. I seriously considered Kawhi's teammate Paul George, but he just didn't have the strongest resume this year. I mean, if we, if, if he didn't partially was coming back from injury, just just wasn't his best defensive yeah. campaign. And, and he hasn't been guarding the best guys nearly exactly. as much either. So yeah, I went with OG as well, but there are a bunch of guys I think worth mentioning. Jason Tatum's help defense this year. I, I think certain entities overrated, but it is still impressive. LeBron is was a plus minus darling in terms of defense this year. Uh, I, I think some of that was credit going to him when it more aptly should have gone to some of his teammates, but he, he was a lot better and helped the transition defense be improved, much improved over last year, where that was a big bugaboo for them. Robert Covington, w- both on the Timberwolves and on the Rockets during the, uh, he was, I think, a key to some of the success that they had defensively during the best parts of the five-out Rockets era. Chris Middleton was a, was good in a team concept. Jimmy Butler had his moments, though I think he's taken a step back. And LeBron's teammate Danny Green, I think, classifies more as a small forward now, and he did a good job, too. Let's turn to, uh, so you, who is your second team again? OG. Oh, yes. All right. Basically, wow. on the same logic. I was, I was torn. I, I think I was more torn than you were because I, I went. No, I, I was like, torn as well. I, I mean, and you could make the argument that on a night to night basis, Covington or Tatum are more valuable than OG, but they're also, those guys aren't necessarily the primary defender on the best guys a lot of the time. Or if they are, in Covington's case, he's, he's not strong enough to deal with a lot of those guys. Um, yeah. Yannisad Nakupo, a clear first-team power forward. He was my defensive player of the year. This one was pretty obvious. His statistical case is impeccable. It's absolutely insane. I mean, he's number, I think he's number three in Raptor, number one in multi-year PIPM. Think about that. Number three yeah. in number three in RPM, number one in defensive PIPM single season. You and I both picked him for defensive player of the year. He was an easy call for first team. The Bucks had a 96.5 defensive rating when he was on the floor. That is number one among any of the players that we were considering. I think it might even be number one in the NBA over a certain minute threshold. And the Bucks, despite their great defense, 7.7 points per 100 better when he was on the floor that's behind only Paul Millsap who probably didn't have enough minutes here uh and Joel Embiid on this list in terms of the on-off differential so uh, it's it's clear how good he is he blocks a ton of shots he can get out in the perimeter and cover ground he's just uh, the the Bucks are maybe the greatest rim protecting team in history again so it's uh it's pretty clear who'd you have for second team Anthony Davis as did I group think baby I mean, Davis, he he bridges some of the gaps, I mean, because he plays a fair amount of center and does a good job there, but he was also an important part in the Lakers, surprising to me, not surprising to you, defensive success this year. And yeah, I mean, the the statistical argument for AD is is pretty clear cut. He fifth in defensive PIPM, fifth in Raptor, I believe sixth in multi-year defensive PIPM. And he, uh, with Millsap taking a little bit of a step back this year and Draymond Green taking a bigger step back this year, though, I will note that Draymond Green is still a plus minus darling because basically the only times the Warriors were defensively competent were when he was on the floor and he was a part of that but it wasn't the same type of performance and I will mention that if he had played a higher proportion of the year I I love Jonathan Isaac and Isaac could have gotten more firmly into this conversation he didn't play enough for me to be comfortable putting him above somebody like Anthony Davis. 
Yeah, also uh, three others I wanted to mention, P.J. Tucker, Ben Simmons, and Maxi Kleba. Tucker, I mean, his, I think a big part of the versatility that I like at Power Fours is guys who can move to center. Tucker has shown that he can do that. He, he can switch. I think he's slowed down a little bit. He's still a good box-out guy defensively. He's just not quite as quick on the perimeter as he used to be. And he's also, he's not a shot blocker. He's a good help defender just in terms of his positioning and taking charges, but he doesn't impact the rim the same way as some of these other guys do. And Simmons also uh, might have been considered and maybe he could have been in the mix at small forward he probably does guard small forwards more than power forwards even though we had him in our power forward rankings because of his lack of shooting he probably guards more at the small forward position uh and, and he would have been right up there at either position but uh, i still think i would have uh the guys that we picked uh, ahead of him uh any, anyone else that you thought deserved mention here no you went through all the guys that i wanted to mention what about at center my two and three on my defensive player of the year ballot both played center the rubric is very similar for me between the, those awards and i went with rudy gobert first team brooke lopez second team i think you might have had it the other way around no, I uh, had Rudy Gobert at first team as well. And I mean, Gobert's the you know if you went with the stats only argument, I mean you could if it's pretty it's pretty robust even compared to Giannis for defensive player of the year. If you're looking through like the box score stuff, third in defensive PIPM, first in RPM, first in Raptor, higher average rank in those stats than Giannis. And I, I think some of that is just the nature of of how those all in ones ones come at it. And he was you know the yeah. most important. Defender. And also uh, the the Jazz didn't have a, a very settled position at backup center right either. yeah i mean ed davis at the beginning of the year tony bradley that we came came into it a little bit towards the end of before the hiatus wasn't there the whole time and of course all those those things matter but i mean lopez has a great resume i had him second and then the other ones i wanted to mention there i mean um Joel Embiid, Bam Adebayo, and then there are a bunch of other centers that have that have good resumes. I wanted to give a special mention. Not, I'm not saying he would have been quote unquote fifth, but I did respect how Derek Favors basically the, the Pelicans defense fell off a damn cliff when he wasn't out there. And I, I always like it when a, a single player can have that sort of an impact. Yeah. Further apologies to Kristaps Porzingis and Miles Turner, who I did feel fell off a little bit this year, but still was, was very solid. Yes. So what would your traditional ballot be then? Uh, two guards, two two forwards and a center first team all NBA. I will note that if I could if I could stump for something awardsy, one of the things would be that I think this in all NBA should be one guard, one front court player, and three wild card to in this case appropriately hmm. reward that front court players are more important defenders than backcourt players in an all NBA just to make sure that you get the top fifteen on there. But I'll do it by the rubric of the, as it stands right now. Uh, my guards would be first team Beverly and Smart. My second team would be I would not have Richardson who was my second team shooting guard. I would not have him on i would instead have dunn and eric bledsoe yeah i would have uh holiday and smart first team and bledsoe would definitely be on there i think i'd probably stick with josh richardson though i think he's uh overall better than guys like beverly or or, or chris dunn again just because dunn just not not enough of a resume for me um at forward i think i would go with Giannis and ad on the first team and then i'd probably have Kawhi. man if, if paul Millsap had just played more i might i might consider him but no i think i'll probably just go with uh, Kawhi and Ananobi on the second team um with Giannis and ad on first team Millsap played enough for me to put him over og that's the only difference i have and for me uh, like ad ad's case to me is just better than Kawhi. and maybe in a playoff series you would see it differently but in terms of who was the better defender in this regular season i think davis was superior yeah i mean and bigs are just a, a little bit more valuable than yes. guys uh, overall and, and then obviously at center nothing would change there okay quick break and we'll get to worst team all defense on the defense episode so here's a few criteria to keep in mind when we're going through this number one is this guy actually trying uh I, i've got a special place in my heart for the people who are far worse than their tools would indicate on this list losing your man for absolutely no reason no screen no help responsibility to distract him that's not good is this player often the closest defender when a layup is given up in the half court where they just don't see their help responsibilities? How much are opposing offenses going at that player? And is the coach trying to do everything that he can to hide him? That's a, a good criterion as well. And 
there are plenty of really bad defensive players in the league but I, i'm saying that you really got to be you know a thousand minute or more type of guy playing time it has to matter because it, you know if you're marco bellinelli coming off the bench in san antonio or whatever like you're not that you're not playing enough minutes to to kill your team so uh let's get right to it here a lot of the guys that i had last year as candidates at center really looked much better mm-hmm. than than uh the year before there are some guys who had actually been okay previously that had down years last year. But I, I thought my first team, or should I say worst team, all defense center, was pretty clear, and that's Thomas Bryant. Were you counting Kevin Love as a power forward or as a center? Uh, he's counting as a power forward. Okay. he's the To be he's the other serious contender. Uh, no, I actually have someone who's worse at power forward than, than Kevin Love. Well, no, but I'm saying, I, at, actually, I'm saying at center, because okay. if, you count, if you count Kevin Love as a center. Yeah, Love really didn't play any center this. I mean, I guess he played center defensively. Yeah, because uh, they couldn't you know, defend anyone else. If he's playing next to Thompson or Nance or something, he is technically the center. But I think Thomas Bryant is worse than I think uh, he just, the, the Wizards have always been really bad when he's been on the floor. He just is not able to impact the rim. Not amazing help awareness. Low athleticism in terms, like he, he's such a hustle guy in the offensive end sprinting the floor but he just isn't able to impact defensively that but they're really there are much, far fewer bad defensive centers uh, than there used to be uh especially who are playing large roles you know and his cancer got better this year deandre jordan got better well, that's a whole other category we'll uh we'll get to that kenneth farid isn't in the league anymore harold got better willie herning gomez didn't play that much Ante Zizic didn't play that much. Rashawn Holmes got better. Dirk isn't in the league anymore. Uh, there's, I think, a growing awareness that uh, you better have someone at least decent at center. Uh, my second team would have uh, been uh, Marquise Chris. Chris definitely had some highlights, but he also had a ton of blown coverages. Power forward, I thought there is a clear player, and that's Carmelo Anthony. Who oh, was yeah. My, he was my worst team all defense two years ago. I actually thought he came in in better shape than he had been uh, towards the end, but he was a big reason why the Blazers, who had largely maintained respectability despite a ton of, uh, despite not having a ton of defensive talent, really struggled this year. And I mean, I think overall compared to what they had, he probably helped them. But man, is he slow! And the effort level is not really there. Does absolutely nothing as a help defender. Anytime he's in pick and roll or an ice, we all know uh, what Carmelo Anthony is not capable of defensively did then did you have kevin love second team or did you have somebody else? uh yeah well i didn't really do it second team but just some other honorable mentions because this is worst team all defense so yeah it's true it, it, with the superlative team they have singular to, yes yes exactly uh but kevin love jabari parker bobby portis julius randall i, I didn't go that far down the list at, at power forward um small forward i thought there's a very obvious candidate as well small forward you don't have that many really bad defenders because you got to have someone who can guard the best wing threats on the other team but i thought the clear winner to me was demar Derozan this year especially because Derozan is a three because he can't defend ones and twos anymore like he is he is a three in the loosest definition of the word yeah he's not going to guard the other team's best wing threat so now and he really has to play the three because he can't guard the one and two as you mentioned and so now you need a four who i guess can guard the best wing threats he just because of what he's not capable of doing he just totally messes up your positions you're you're forced to play two small guards next to him in addition to the fact that that he can't shoot either so that's another reason that he has to play the three because you need guards to get more shooting on the floor with him uh yeah i thought he actually did a little bit better last year but they also played two bigs together a lot more last year but now because of him they can't play two bigs together either since he has to play the three i'm, I'm hoping you i'm hoping you had kevin knox as an honorable mention i did he just uh, played a little bit smaller of a role this year so uh andrew wiggins was, was in there too I, I thought he was a little better with the warriors shooting guard and point guard but i thought particularly shooting guard there are some real uh outstanding worst team all defense candidates james harden uh, we've talked many times about his low effort level how if he's gonna play you have to basically run a switching system because he's just never going to get through a screen. He basically is almost guarding power forwards at this point. Uh, Devin Booker and Bradley Beal pitched the negative defensive metrics crown among shooting guards back and forth among them all season. But I ultimately went with Zach Levine uh, because I think Booker and Beal have it in them at times to be acceptable, whereas Levine is just maybe the worst help defender as a shooting guard that I've ever seen. And he's pretty damn bad on ball too. Yes. Yeah, he, he, he tried to spin the narrative at one point that he's a, a good on-ball defender and he just has trouble off-ball. It's like, no, actually, yeah, your on-ball is better than your off-ball, but uh, 
if there were ever damning with faint praise that would be it point guard here two-time defending champion now trey young i will note that while I I agree with Trey Young as the pick, it is impressive that the two lowest players with a thousand minutes in Raptor are both Cavs point guards. Colin Sexton and Darius Garland. Sexton negative four point seven on Raptor. Garland negative three point nine. That is genuinely impressive if you think about the universe of the two hundred and twenty three players played that many minutes in the league, and that it's the starting two Cleveland Cleveland guard point guards. Um, I mean, you got a lot of other nominees here. D'Angelo Russell, another oh, just yeah. terrible year defensively. Simons still just too small. He, I, I, you know, he's he's a backup, yeah, so it doesn't. Anthony come. Simons of yeah. Portland, yeah. But yeah, I agree. I agree with you having Trey Young as the the cream of the crop of the bad yeah and I, I also apologies to lou williams who basically anytime he's guarding someone who can do anything the clippers just go and double team that person and uh rajon ronto uh still uh, a the biggest weak link uh, on that lakers defense is rondo the player with the greatest conventional wisdom versus actual value on defense disparity i think people get it now yeah maybe they do uh i think three years ago yes i would i would have said he i mean i'd really have to go through it and see but uh i mean that that is a correct observation that his reputation outstrips his accomplishment most improved this is always fun to talk about uh and feel free to throw out a, a few others here this is just a, a list of some players i'm not uh force ranking these guys but just players whose who's improved performance stuck out to me thought contavious caldwell pope had a little bit of a down year last year i think he's back this year uh avery bradley as well his teammate with the lakers those guys have done good ball hawking work uh chris paul i think it in part due to health but also just because he, he's been in more of a leadership role again in, in okc and uh dennis Schroeder, who had been one of the worst defensive guards in basketball he got off that list this year amazing what can happen if you can be the third best defensive guard in your in your lineups but yeah he has been better uh deandre eaton to me gets deserves some serious oh yeah on for sure team. at center yeah, yeah. I, I was getting to him he, okay he, uh a lot of centers i think got a lot better but he's he was my uh Oh, yeah, I guess I never picked a uh, worst defensive player of the year this year. Oof, that's tough. Who would you go with for worst uh, defender of the year? It's it's between DeRozan and Trey Young. And I think I want to go with DeRozan because he actually creates, in some ways, more cascading problems than Trey Young does just because, yeah. because how the hell do you handle a wing that can't defend? Yeah, on a per-play basis, it might have been Carmelo again. But, uh, you know, he got a late start. So, uh, unfortunately, we'll have, to, we'll have to go with DeRozan. Oh, but you were, but you were making your way through the uh, through the positions for improvement. Yeah, yeah. So last year, DeAndre Ayton was my worst defensive player of the year. I, I thought he it was borderline acceptable uh, this year. Uh, other centers I thought really improved. Uh, and by for Ayton, I mean he just actually blocked some shots this year. It was in position a little bit more, and he's very solid as a one on one guy, both on smaller players and guarding in the post. I wouldn't say he's like above average or anything, but you watch their games and you weren't just like clawing your eyes out anymore, which was a big. Big progress for him uh his former teammate Rashawn Holmes I thought took yes. a step forward to actually being a, a positive this year uh for the first time in his career in I, Sacramento I I thought DeAndre Jordan was SOL on defense and he was I thought he was a lot better than I expected this year not as much of an improvement as Holmes because it was more a improvement back to where he to closer to where he was but I wanted to mention it would you say Kleba improved materially I would say so I thought he was already good uh I, I didn't Tr- oh Tristan was. Thompson yeah that's a good one Montres Harrell I thought got a lot better he was uh one of the worst last season and I thought he uh, improved his ability to switch yeah he had more talent around him now which I think helped you know he wasn't playing next to Danilo Gallinari and Lou Williams in the same lineup most of the time uh but i i thought he improved he's not he's still not great but he, he's uh, better um what about guys who fell off this year draymond is is an is a pretty obvious one i mean in terms yes. of consistency of effort not not as much in terms of capability but yeah I, I, he was the most the to me the most notable drop off of a player who was largely healthy i mean he missed some some games due to legitimate reasons some due to specious reasons but that's the most prominent one for me Thaddeus Young was on my all-defensive team last year, and he didn't play as much, which was part of it, but he didn't really seem to make as much of a difference this year to me. And Paul George was among the best last year, in part due to the fact that he didn't play as much, but also I think he just wasn't quite the the same impact as a ball hawk. DeJounte Murray at guard is one that stuck out to me where he was really, you know, a a clear all-defense pick a couple years ago. And coming back from the ACL, that's not a surprise. The Spurs also. He he returned to a much different Spurs defense than the one that he left two years ago as well. Very true. At center, Al Horford has now made this list for me two years in a row. That's bad uh, as someone who fell off this year. 
Uh, in particular, he was really just getting traffic coned in a drop pick and roll coverage. Dwayne Dedman, he just had, had a lost year. Lamarcus Aldridge. I thought was uh, close to a positive these last few years in San Antonio, and that was no longer the case. And then uh, Carl Anthony Towns wasn't great last year, but I thought he showed some signs of progress, and that wasn't the case any longer. Oh, should he, we mention TJ Warren for improved? Oh yeah, how did I not? I think I I just oh we skipped over the forwards. That's why. That's why because you mentioned eight, and I went straight to the centers. Yeah, um, LeBron way yeah, way better. Yeah. Kawhi way way better. We we talked about Kawhi already. LeBron actually trying more active as a health defender. Even spent some time guarding some of the best guys at times late in games and then yeah tj warren is huge i mean he was uh, a very high quality defensive small forward in indiana uh, a lot of guys come to indiana and get a lot better defensively it's impressive okay uh players who are better than you think obviously this depends on perception but we'll give it a shot here i thought at guard evan fournier is someone who despite the presence of john isaac and and aaron gordon he actually spends a fair amount of time guarding the best perimeter guy on the magic and i think he does a, a pretty decent job of it he, he competes he's able to get over screens okay you know not really an athletic playmaker but just to look at him i think you you wouldn't think that he's uh the greatest defensive player in the world and he's totally solid yeah i think that's i think that's a totally reasonable pick and he's been a part of some successful defense he's not obviously he's the best player but not as a point of failure which i think is important another guard that i had and again this is not an exhaustive list by any means is uh kobe white who just because rookie point guards are generally so terrible defensively he actually impressed me with how well he competed this year i would say it, it's always hard with bucks support players but i think divincenzo as an overall as an overall defensive player he's capable and so yeah. I, I think he, he kind of fits in that and he's, he's he's very feisty defensive rebounder, which I really like. And sometimes yeah, offensive rebounder. Um, at forward, Cam Reddish, actually, especially as the year yes. rolled on, I thought he uh, showed some signs. He, he was uh, much better than his teammate, who will appear uh, on a list uh, in the next category. Royce O'Neal, perpetually underrated, not on this show, but I, I think by a lot of people. TJ Warren, we mentioned him already. And Will Moxie Barton. Kleba. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Kleba is a good one, too. I mean, that's, uh, I don't think anyone thinks that Kleba is like a bad defender, but, you know, he's very, very good. Um, Dylan Brooks, uh, I thought, was uh, very solid as a wing defender this year. People might not have known about him. And then Will Barton, playing small forward, really uh, uh, was a big key to Denver's defense. And a surprise, I thought that he uh, really, especially last year when he was hurt, trying to play the three was, was pretty rough. And he is quite spindly, but he holds up well, uh, especially as, uh, maybe more of an off-ball guy and then at center there's uh there's a little bit of a theme among these guys i had four people nicole Jokic, who was on this list last year as better than you think aaron baines avicha zubach and Jakob Pertl. So white foreign big men. <laughs> well, and I would say Daniel Tice as well to keep the theme going. Uh, yeah, no, there you go. Um, although he's on the Celtics. Can anyone on the Celtics ever be underrated? Um, worse than you think. Anyone really come to mind on this for you? Ingram. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, his his offensive game deserves a ton of praise for that, but he is he is still not a good defender. Doesn't play with enough force. Can't get over a screen. Yeah. Doesn't not doesn't really make plays as a help guy. Got that seven three wingspan. Yeah, he's he's up there in the uh, the least with the most award. Uh, Rui Hachimura is another one who has the physical tools and just it doesn't really have much ability to do anything defensively other than just guard his guy in an ISO. Um, and nobody who plays the Wizards really needs to ISO because you can get an open shot a lot more easily than that. Um, at guard, Russell Westbrook, we've talked about his defense for a long, long time. Uh, TJ McConnell is someone who is really feisty, but I think he just uh, can be overwhelmed physically. Jetty Osman looks like just kind of a normal small forward, but uh, he is really one of the worst at that position, maybe the worst uh, at small forward. In fact, I'm going to add him into the small forward category for uh, honorable mention, worst team all defense. Basically, every single member of the Cavs, other than Tristan Thompson and Larry Nance, should be on there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, we really maybe we, we don't have enough Wizards on this list. Really, it's uh, that's an oversight. I mean, I don't, they don't have anyone who sticks out as just being like so terrible, but just they have absolutely no one who's even like close to good. I mean, they are one of the worst defenses of all time, maybe the worst defense of all time statistically. So, I mean, you had Thomas Bryant as your first team center, so I think that's that, true. I think that's, that's true. 
And and I think um, partially it's it's a team effort for the Wizards. Like their their starters are bad at defense. Their backups are bad at defense. They have you know they had Ish Smith and yeah. Isaiah in the rotation at various moments in time. Both of which yeah are yeah Isaiah would have ranked highly if were he still in the league. Um, Zion definitely on the worst than you think. Oh yeah, list and uh, DeAndre Hunter, the teammate aforementioned of uh, Cam Reddish, and then at center, uh, Mason Plumley and Hassan Whiteside stuck out to me as being uh, worse than you think. Plumley worse than Mike Malone thinks in particular. Uh, the most with the least award. Anyone come to mind for you just uh, off the top of your head? Hmm. A few years ago it was Joe Ingles, but uh, Aaron Baines. Yeah, Joe, Joe fell off this year. Yeah. Aaron Baines, I think, qualifies. Yeah, I, I got him on there. Um, friend of the program, DeMontis Sabonis is on there for me. I, I think he, while I don't think of him as a quality defensive center, you would rank <laughs> I like his... how even that is kind of a backhanded compliment. Well, I mean, he, I don't think anyone is saying that he's some awesome defensive player, but when you look at his tools with a short wingspan not particularly explosive not a particularly big standing reach for a center for him to even you know approach being average uh, is pretty good i mean he can move his feet okay he's got a good understanding uh, of when to help uh you know so i think he he is exceeding his physical tools it's just uh, he's getting the most out of uh, what's available to him he just uh, not I that think, much is available. i think Jokic qualifies pretty clearly for that too i sure. mean He's, well, Jokic at least has. Uh, are we, do we count like no being a savant of the game of basketball as as, yeah. as skill I, in this respect? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Jokic, yeah, sure it does, but but I think he, I think Sabonis is better than Jokic actually because Sabonis, you don't have to put two on the ball and pick and roll all that's the true. time. Like he's, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, you know, Jokic just is not really capable of any kind of verticality. Like he can't even get off the ground enough for verticality. Not to mention to block the guy's shot. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, again, I think he, he does better than his slow tools would indicate, but he also, he's got a pretty, I think he's like nine, three standing reach, pretty good wingspan. Um, and then PJ Tucker has got to be on this oh, uh, yeah. as well. Um, for a, a six, five guy who can't jump at all to be playing center in the NBA effectively. It's pretty good. The least with the most award. We already mentioned Brandon Ingram already mentioned Carl Anthony Towns. And I would throw Andre Drummond into this list as well. And Wiggins. Yeah. I, I mean, they, they, we may actually name this award after him. Wiggins, um, and I think Russell Westbrook deserves a, I mean, he's slowing down, but I think he's still, I mean, he's still a, a you see the, the beast element in transition on offense, and then it's just not as consistent on defense anymore. He's not right, like the winner yeah. to me, but he's in the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. He, he probably wins it at point guard. Uh, all right. I think that's it here. Stay tuned. It's just going to be a solo pod uh, for me on the COVID Daily News. Ben will be back on that tomorrow. We're still going to run that on Dunked On for a few more days here. Uh, thank you so much for your support with that. If you want to give that a rating or review or subscribe, tell your friends that that's appreciated. Do you have anything you want to talk about before we go here? Part two of my 2020 Wings free agency preview should be out in The Athletic on either Thursday or Friday. You can take a look for that. And there will be a Real Jam Radio in a couple days that I'm really excited about. Welcome to the COVID Daily News. Yes, we have a name change because... Because there are too many podcasts with coronavirus daily in them it's gonna be a solo edition today ben is the day off we remind you before we get started to tell your friends uh, about this podcast you can search coronavirus nate duncan covid nate duncan and subscribe in your favorite podcast player it is up on itunes right now i've tweeted that link out if you want to subscribe on apple Podcasts, leave us a review as well that's always much appreciated and since we are not ad supported at the moment, a subscription at Patreon, patreon.com slash Duncan LaRue is a great way to support this endeavor. So let's get started here. I wanted to begin with a, a paper I came across last week from Michael Greenstone and Bishan Nigam of the University of Chicago. They looked at that Imperial College simulation model of COVID-19 spread. They projected that with three to four months of social distancing, 1.7 million lives in the U.S. would be saved by October 1st. That, of course, is compared to if we did basically nothing, which is what it seemed like maybe we were on path to do in early March. So again, this goes back to this issue of whether it's better economically to maintain social distancing or to reopen and they noted that of that 1.7 million that they projected would be saved versus doing nothing 630,000 of those of those are due to flattening the curve avoiding the overwhelming of hospital intensive care units so that they could actually give treatment and save more people and they projected out the age specific reductions in death 
and they looked at the United States government's value of a statistical life, and they found that the mortality benefits of social distancing and the saved lives are about $8 trillion, $60,000 per U.S. household, and most of those would accrue to people age 50 or older. And their final conclusion is that the social distancing initiatives have substantial economic benefits. And the other thing that I don't think they even looked at in this was the idea that we wouldn't have that much economic activity anyway due to the virus and the number of deaths. And they also didn't look at the cost of treating all of the people who are going to get sick if we didn't do anything with social distancing. So everything that I've seen, most economists that I've seen, remember we talked about that study of, or that survey, I should say, of 10 economists last week that UChicago also did, talking about whether they agreed with inputting social distancing measures or not. And so it seems like almost all of the economic experts are on the side of implementing social distancing, not to mention the fact that nearly every scientist in the fields of epidemiology, virology, etc., are in favor of it. And this will be important to remember as we're talking about the potential lifting of social distancing measures. I slipped up there. I should be calling it physical distancing, but the paper called it social distancing, so it made me lapse back into that nomenclature. But it'll be important to remember all this when people are saying, oh, we're hurting too much economically. We have to open things up maybe before scientists say that we should. And once more, I emphasize the false dichotomy between economics and saving lives at this point, at least. I mean, there will perhaps reach a point but at which that dichotomy develops. But the virus has to be so much more under control by that point. And really, I think if you're at the point where there's community spread and people are concerned about it, reopening when you have community spread, where you have people getting the virus and you don't know where it came from, especially given the incubation time of this virus, it's hard to see a quote-unquote normal economy in any situation where you have community spread. Let's take a look at how things are in New York. They have now passed Spain as well as Italy in confirmed cases. And in fact, New York State alone has more cases than any single country in the world outside of the United States. New York State, New York City would seem to have just about the highest rates of infection of anywhere in the world right now. Because so many New Yorkers rely on transit, that has had to keep running even just for people going to essential jobs. But more than 6,000 transit workers in New York have fallen sick or have had to self-quarantine and 41 have died so far. Now, one thing that's been talked about by Governor Cuomo in his briefings is the good news that hospitalizations are falling. I think that's good news, but there are reasons why it's not necessarily indicative. Number one, you only have so many spots in hospitals. And perhaps the reason that new hospitalizations are falling is because either there isn't room for new people or the standard for who gets hospitalized is being raised. A New York Times article noted that several New York doctors said in interviews that they've sent people home who would have been admitted a a few weeks ago as these hospitals have been on the brink of being overwhelmed. And it's also been noted the number of people who are now dying in their homes and Bill de Blasio noted that about about 100 to 200 people per day are dying in their homes in an appearance uh, on CNN Wednesday. And we've seen this in New York. We've seen this now in a lot of urban areas, the Detroit area, the Chicago area, the DC area, that the black community is being devastated by the coronavirus and the incident of infection is much higher within the black community. The outcomes are worse within the black community. And generally with this pandemic, any community that overall has worse health outcomes, that has a higher prevalence of underlying conditions that have been shown to really increase mortality from the virus, those communities are going to be at risk. And then you throw in that So much of the black community is living in urban areas that have been the hardest hit at least so far. And that's how you're getting these devastating statistics. In Michigan, as of a couple of days ago, 35% of cases and 40% of deaths were in the black population. In the D.C. area, 
46% of the population is black, but 60% of the cases occurring there. In Chicago, as of April 5th, 70% of COVID-19 deaths occurring in the black community. And in Cook County, which is uh, the county that Chicago is in, 23% of the population is black and 58% of the COVID-19 deaths have come from the black population. Also worth noting that studies have shown that the ability to work from home is lower within the black community. Transit workers, uh, or as we noted in New York, there's a a lot of risk. A larger proportion of transit workers uh, are black. We've also noted on previous episodes that prisons are emerging as hotspots. In fact, the Cook County Jail in Chicago, according to the New York Times, has emerged as the largest known source of U.S. virus infections, the largest known single source, over 350 cases. And as I'm sure many of you know, the prison population is disproportionately black as well. So there are a lot of factors many of them stemming from the overall racial inequities in our society that are leading to this tragic situation with disproportionately high coronavirus cases and deaths within the black community. Also a lot of concern for the Native American population which suffers from relatively poor health outcomes in general, a higher prevalence of the underlying conditions that exacerbate negative outcomes with the virus. The Navajo Nation in particular has been hard hit. That's mostly in northeastern Arizona. Native Americans have higher rates of diabetes, cancer, heart disease, asthma, and more likely to have overcrowded housing situations as well, according to Kevin Alice, who's the chief executive of the National Congress of American Indians. About half of Native Americans live on reservations. Health experts at John Hopkins said that houses often lack electricity and running water. Washing hands is more challenging. And for an analog, the 1918 flu pandemic struck Native Americans four times harder than the general population. Some other really rough stats that Native Americans are 600 times more likely to die of tuberculosis, nearly 200 times more likely to die of diabetes than other groups. More than a quarter of Native Americans under 65 lack health insurance. Uh, A lot of these stats coming from a, a Washington Post article on this subject. And unfortunately, there's not much reason to believe that the health health outcomes for Native Americans are going to be any better with this crisis than with the incidence of other disease. And all of this uh, is really entering the mainstream media. Uh, Dr. Fochi today said that uh, even when the pandemic is over, there's still going to be health disparities that we really need to address uh, in the African-American community because the coronavirus really is having devastating effects. This is something we talked about I think last week, but rural America is now starting to be very hard hit and We noted the relative lack of hospital services in rural America. Also, the issue of the solvency of the health services in rural America, a lot of rural hospitals. And this is everywhere. This is even just from a a couple of days ago at the Washington Post. But about 95% of Americans, as of a few days ago, and I'm sure it's only increased, uh, live in counties reporting at least one case of the coronavirus. And this is community transmission. There's been a theory that rural America wouldn't be hit as hard because there isn't as much density. And I think that's true to some extent compared to a place like New York where you're getting on the subway, you're mixing with a lot of random people. But I think generally what's caused the greatest amount of transmission has been people's normal daily socializing. I'm not aware of that just in terms of the number of people that they see or visit or group gatherings such as churches or schools that people in rural America actually see others in their social lives that much less than people in urban areas. And some might argue even that there's a a greater sense of community in those areas. And statistics have shown that while uh, with other diseases, such as flu season, there's a delay in when it hits rural communities, but that they generally suffer more in the end. And that's what my fear is for the coronavirus, especially considering that many rural communities, rural states, because it hasn't hit there first, have not implemented physical distancing requirements until recently, and some still haven't. And it just, it remains incredible to me that people have lacked the foresight in any places, the U.S. as a whole, rural areas in the U.S., the UK, basically anywhere that saw what was happening in China 
and then began to see community transmission i mean i think really the standard has to be if you have community transmission you probably need to be moving very early with restrictions and hey guess what the economies that moved early with restrictions they are the ones who are in theory going to be able to open up faster and may indeed suffer the least economic damage but it's just i remarked on this early on in our run of how it just seems like we as humans have this spectacular ability to avoid putting ourselves in other shoes and believe that what's happening to them may someday happen to us even when you've seen across the entire world that that's what the pattern is one other thing that we should be watching and keeping our eye on a little bit is just here in the u.s the finances related to treatment of the coronavirus perversely at a time when many health professionals are busier than they've ever been we've seen some stories of workers actually having to get their salaries cut because what makes all the money in our healthcare system is the other kind of stuff or the elective surgeries or all of the stuff that now has been put on hold for coronavirus treatment and that stuff doesn't pay for these for-profit healthcare the way that some of the other surgeries that now are being postponed so that coronavirus treatment capacity can be increased does. So I think this is a problem that's going to continue to pop up. Uh, There was aid for hospitals in the coronavirus relief bill, but the U.S. healthcare system is not really designed to function to treat this disease in terms of what the monetary incentives are. Finally, just to tie a bow on a a story we hit on a couple of times the acting secretary of the navy thomas modley resigned on tuesday after he took the step of flying all the way to guam and directly addressing the sailors on the uss theodore roosevelt where captain brett crozier had been ousted for sending a memo outside of the normal channels which then was leaked to the media we talked about that uh, on some previous episodes crozier then it was revealed uh, had tested positive for the coronavirus and those remarks uh, which modley made were recorded and leaked to the media and hmm, maybe he should have been smart enough to know that he was speaking in a, in a way that his remarks could potentially get out to the media eh Those remarks in which he called Crozier too naive or too stupid to be in command of the aircraft carrier, and he was immediately forced to apologize and uh, has now resigned. And Undersecretary of the Army James McPherson, who actually served on the Theodore Roosevelt will succeed Modley. So I talked pretty extensively uh, on why that removal happened, even though I thought that Crozier did the right thing. But then clearly Modley with these comments, uh, which were extremely insensitive, also needed to go as a result of his actions uh, after removing Crozier from command. Let's turn to the world now. Boris Johnson is in stable condition. Prime Minister of the UK, of course. He is responding to treatment according to a spokesman, but remains in intensive care. This is now about 48 hours since he entered intensive care. He is receiving oxygen, but was not put on a ventilator. He does not have pneumonia. He's not hopefully progressing towards that acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, which is a rapid onset of widespread inflammation in the lungs, which the combination of the coronavirus and the immuno response to the coronavirus cause, which is really when you're in big trouble once that develops and you need to be on a ventilator. Downing Street did not comment on what other treatment Johnson is receiving, aside from the fact that he's getting oxygen and he's breathing without assistance. The prime minister isn't working and Dominic Rabb, the foreign secretary, is basically doing the job of prime minister full-time now. In China, Wuhan has lifted their lockdown as scheduled on April 8th. A lot of this is via Bill Bishop's Cynicism newsletter, which is a a great aggregation of much of the news, both English language and Chinese language from China. They had a light show on either side of the Yangtze River. Skyscrapers and bridges radiated animated images of health workers aiding patients. One of these displayed the words heroic city, which uh, President Xi has bestowed upon Wuhan, or Wuhan. Citizens waved flags, chanted Wuhan, let's go, and sang the Chinese national anthem. It's not 
back to normal yet of course there they're still having compulsory mask wearing temperature checks limited access to residential communities in wuhan about fifty-five thousand citizens who do not live there but were marooned as a result of the lockdown or finally able to leave but some other governments like zhejiang again i apologize for my chinese translation when i'm only seeing these uh, places in print or not translation but pronunciation there they are actually going to make people coming from wuhan take coronavirus tests after they arrive there's a number of places that are doing that it appears that the chinese propaganda regarding the response to the virus domestically is continuing for example cynicism noted that the zengzong lawyer association disbarred a local lawyer who it said spread quote-unquote rumors online about people lining up outside of a funeral home in wuhan a lawyer in beijing posted that and then that post of the lawyer association's notice has now been censored other weibo posts weibo is basically the or weibo i should say is essentially the the chinese version of twitter it noted that a magazine called portrait wasn't allowed to publish their new issue because it did an article on a doctor who was uh, an early whistleblower on the coronavirus and earlier this month uh, reports indicated that the government really clamped down ostensibly to help quell the spread of coronavirus on gatherings celebrating the dead the chinese tradition of, of tomb sweeping with many believing that a big reason they wanted to avoid this was they didn't want a bunch of people getting together and allowing them to talk and express their anger about what had happened and what the government response was uh, to the disease also worth noting though that china has reported no deaths for the first day in quite some time due to the coronavirus more news out of britain there had been some fanfare about the fact that they had ordered provisionally 17.5 million antibody tests which people could self-administer that was going to be huge to establish some of that serological testing get an idea of how many people in the population that have actually suffered from the coronavirus and recovered and unfortunately they tried sourcing these tests from a number of places and none of them work they aren't sensitive enough reports that at least one of the tests uh, that they ordered from china only yields a positive test when the person suffered from really severe coronavirus symptoms so i i'd been very hopeful about that but uh, apparently they really need to refine the quality of these tests it seems like it could be a great way if it really is that easy to just you know give yourself a, a pinprick and determine whether you have the antibodies or not but uh at least for right now it seemed like it was too good to be true cases are up again today in italy but some context there because they also did a lot more testing today i think they increased testing by almost 50 percent today and one positive story is what's going on in new zealand where they have pursued a strategy of quote-unquote elimination rather than suppression uh, new zealand is an island nation makes things a little bit easier they only have four million people and they have peaked at 89 cases uh, mostly related to foreign travel and there's little evidence so far according to a washington post article of community transmission i thought it was interesting because they they shut down pretty quickly relative to the number of cases that they had in mid-march and Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern noted that they will continue to lock down for two 14-day cycles, 28 days. The 14 days, of course, noted as the amount of time that you're generally supposed to self-quarantine to make sure that you do not have coronavirus. I thought it was notable from this story that it was actually business leaders who were instrumental in getting New Zealand to shut down and one of those leaders was Stephen Tyndall, who's a, a founder of New Zealand's largest retailer. His quote was, if we didn't shut down quickly enough, the pain was going to go on for a very long time. It is inevitable that we will have to shut down anyway, so we'd rather it be sharp and short. And I think that's a, a great philosophy. I think those who have had that philosophy have largely done the best here. Switzerland actually called up thousands of soldiers they don't have the biggest army in the world they called up only about 5,000 soldiers but I did think it was a noteworthy example of a government using the resources at hand to try to get personnel to the places where they are needed and we can finish today with more from India in Mumbai 
masks are now required and the province of Uttar Pradesh which is the most populous in India it's in uh, northern India they've ordered a complete shutdown of COVID-19 hotspots in 15 districts that's not the entire district but it is the hotspot areas it's unclear exactly how large of a sealing off will occur around the cases but it, there's about 75 or so of these hotspots in the province it's going to occur in any cities that have six or more COVID-19 cases are, are the guidelines. And so here's what that sealing off means. People in the sealed hotspots are not allowed to step out of the house for anything. This is per uh, an India Today English language article. Essential commodities will be delivered at home. People can order groceries and medicines online. The government is going to set up a centralized call center where people can call to place orders for essential goods. Those who have curfew passes in those districts are going to be reviewed and non-essential passes are going to be canceled. No vegetable and fruit markets will be open. Any other place where crowds can gather will be sealed. Anyone trying to enter or exit the sealed area will be cited. Each and every house in the sealed zone is going to be sanitized and entry and exit from these areas will only be allowed to the media and people employed in essential services. What an undertaking that sounds like. And I can't say that I know enough about the resources available to the national and provincial governments in India. India, but this seems like just an incredible undertaking to make food available for all these people who are totally shut in. And what do you do if you don't have a phone or you don't have internet? Assuming it had to be something to look at of how well they can pull this off because it seems like quite an undertaking. Maybe these areas just aren't that big right now. And that's the idea is we're just going to try and cordon them off and give them all the resources that they need to survive and that we can do this now because these are smaller areas maybe that's what the thinking is here so that will be it for today ben will be back tomorrow to close out the week please give us a rating or review here on covid daily news you can subscribe search nate duncan covid or nate duncan coronavirus in your favorite podcast player hopefully if it's not up now i know it's up on itunes it will be up very shortly on your podcast player of choice i've also got a link to it at the top of my twitter at nate duncan nba and if you want to support this ad-free program patreon.com slash duncan larue is a great way to do that link to that also in my twitter bio thanks again for your support and we'll talk to you all tomorrow till then at bet 365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every basket every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.